Yes. All right, Florian, please report to the community how it's going in your community, meaning all those identities that you have going on in your mind right now. Yeah, where to start? Um, I guess one main major event lately is that the community decided to consolidate by some people moved, we let go of one house, and now the core of the community is concentrated into two houses, in the south of Seattle. Um, to, yeah, like having more like, quote unquote, core members and less, quote unquote, tourists, um, gives us more freedom to, to do more of the things we want to do. It sounds like you're in the American thing about more. Say again? More freedom to do more, more, more things, a lot of more things. Okay, more possibilities. It's a horrible answer. I want to tell you why. I was on yes. this stage. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Nice to uh -huh. see you. I was on this stage once with Bert Hellinger. Bert Hellinger is a creator of family constellation work. And this was in Hamburg, Germany. And I, he said, if you have a question, you just raise it, come up and I stand on the stage in a line. So I was standing in the stage and people could sit next to him on the stage and ask him a question. He would answer the question to everybody in the audience. And so it came to be my turn. So I sat next to him and immediately he grabs my hand. I'm sitting to his left. He grabs my right hand and, and holds it in two hands and I could feel him, his grounding cord and his, his space holding so that he didn't want my gremlin to, to get out of hand on the stage. So he was, in a way, he was like telling me to keep my gremlin sitting next to me. He says, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. And so I had this question and I said, I'm really afraid of overpopulation, human overpopulation on planet Earth. And because it was just been bugging me because I had no solution for it. It was like, it was just, it was just like this dominant thing in my world at the time. And he, he looks at me and he goes, looks me, he, right in the eyes, he looks at me and goes, do you want more? <laughs> and I go, well, you know, yeah, I want more life, more intensity, more experience, more love, more attention, more connections, you know, more. And so he said, any questions? I mean, it was a horrible answer because, because he, what he said was basically it's human nature to want more. And that's what you were checking in about. You were, you were, I don't know if you were aware of it, you were, how often you use the word more. Hmm but it reminded me of our situation of wanting more without thinking about it, without, without being able to stop ourselves. You know, like right now I want more chocolate or right now I want more, I want more, um, I want more sparks written. I've been writing sparks lately or I want, I want, we're on this and Chloe and I are on a, on an Island off the coast of Africa right now called Tenerife, it's, it belongs, Spain conquered the Guanchos who were the local citizens of the, of the island. 
before the Spaniards came and just wiped them out. And, and uh, but the Spanish wanted more. So they came and just conquered the island. And so me, I, I want to go see more of the island. I mean, there's so many things um, this, that the, without thinking about it, more influences us. So I, I just want to thank you for reminding me to notice in myself this human, probably unconscious, maybe species-wide impulse for more. Mm -hmm. Just pay attention to it. Makes me curious if, hmm, if you had another insight recently or another experience, confrontation with the more mentality. Sounds like a great conversation. It's not going to be the one we're having right now. Uh, but thank you for your question. Let's continue that conversation in another place. Sounds good. Hello, everybody else. Does somebody else want to say something as we come together? Kay, you've got a little baby sitting there. This is wonderful. Can you talk about that? Or should you be quiet? Well, I feel kind of bad since you're just talking about overpopulation. <laughs> Uh, I only had one child, I want to say, <laughs> and uh, it's my, my daughter's baby, mm. she's three weeks old, and she's sleeping in, so I'll probably be off camera in a minute as he starts crying. Thank you. Nice to see that. It's a wonderful, it's wonderful to have babies in this space. Thank you. Yeah, somebody else want to say something? And by the way, Kay, uh, Kay has written a, a great article. I hope she tells us when it's online somewhere so you can read it. But it's great. Thank you. Somebody else have something to say? Pontus, maybe. Not much to say. OK, nice to see you. Phyllis, what about you? Well, I like that you talked about the concept of more. And, and I'd like to hear more about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Leslie, anything? Yeah, I wanted to say that um, there's been so many interesting things coming out of um, the, the study group, this study group, and um, joining Vera's possibility team, and I'm on Scott and, um, Scott and the other, Scott and Amanda. Is that her name? Anyway, yes, Amanda's possibility team. Um, and yeah, there's just, I'm, I'm just brimming with uh, enthusiasm and, and uh, 
things that, that just flew out of my head just now. And the whole idea of the confusion box seems very true for me, except one line in there about uh, <laughs> that I, I know that I will confuse you too, but then the next line was, was a little, it didn't quite ring for me. I was going to look at it again. Anyway, there's so many things flowing through my mind and, and I'm most happy about, uh, like shift beep go just, I mean, beep shift go. Is the idea that I don't have to feel bad about how messed up I am, how, you know, how far along I am not. And um, I'm, I'm in the work and I'm having a good time and I'm trying to watch my, you know, tendency to go into the low drama so that I then I, which keeps me from gaining as much as I could from the work. So it's awesome. Thank you, everybody. Everybody's taken on trainership and leadership and uh, joining these groups so I can practice. And uh, wow, it's awesome. The training of the trainer, you know, like making it available to so many people is it's just awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amber, how are you doing over there? I'm quite well. I, I had like, I went through a little earthquake this morning because I watched Hooked last night, the movie. And when I got up this morning, I, I, I felt like, oh shit, that was a movie for me. And it, it was just, a, I was total liquid and it's, I don't know, it resonated so much, this movie, that I, I'm, I'm still kind of liquid. So I'm good and liquid. Okay, thank you. What was the movie? Hook? Hook. Hook. Thank you. It's, it's totally touching. With Robin Williams, right? Robert Williams is brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. all the kids are amazing and the story is heart opening and... <laughs> yes, it's on the list. Worth yeah. Good. Good one. <laughs> anybody else want to share anything before we jump in? Janet or Nicole or anybody? I would like to ask something. Um, Stephanie, go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, I was just listening to the recording of the last week and you were mentioning um, the part of the quantum physics and then when we observe something that we influence at the same time and i mean i've heard this several times because in some like some spiritual teachings i would say pick up on this as well 
And I had a thought about this, which I was carrying since a while, and I never talked about it or shared it, and that's why I would like to bring it up now, which is back in university, I learned, I studied some chemistry, and I learned a bit about this quantum physics stuff, and I remember, like anybody who knows better, please correct me if, if I'm getting it wrong, but that the, um, the uncertainty, or how is it called, the, the, from principle, the uncertainty principle from Heisenberg, uh, it says that you cannot um, measure the place um, or the, where a particle is without influencing its impulse or its speed. So the more detailed you measure the place, the more you will influence the speed that it basically. But the explanation behind is because if you want to measure the place of a particle, you, you need to shoot like a wavelength, like a light or something on it to detect where it's going to get distracted. And if you take a long wavelength, you will have a not very detailed answer where it is, but if you have a short wavelength, you will get a very detailed answer where it is, the particle that you're measuring. But since the short wavelength light is very high energetical, it will push the particle in the moment of measuring where it is, and therefore you will kind of destroy the information of, of the impulse or the speed. So you get the place that you, have, you already have influenced the speed. And otherwise, if you put less influence on the speed, you will be less specific with the place since you're using the, the low energy weight. And I really, this really got stuck in my head because I kind of, I think I understood that. If, like I said, if anybody there can explain it better, please correct me. But I, since some years, I have a problem to, to apply this on the spiritual view of when we observe something, we influence it. Like, don't get me wrong, I believe that when we search our thoughts or our box or whatever, that we have an influence in this, and I'm, I'm really with this, but that this is supported by the quantum physics, I'm just not linking these together, and I would ask for clarity in this. Thank you. It's quite simple. The, the point is that in physics, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which says the more, the closer you look at something, the more you change it. It's horrible in physics, but wonderful for box expansion. So the more detailed clarity we have precisely about what's going on inside of us, the more, the more space we create for ourselves. So we're no longer constricted to the, to the unconscious mechanisms by placing our pointed attention and discovering in detail how things work. We, un, we liberate ourselves from being trapped in the mechanism. So the awareness of the mechanism uh, frees you from being trapped in the mechanism. So it's fantastic for box expansion. That's the I fully agree with this. I just have a bit hard time to see that quantum physics is quantum physics is supporting this that we influence whatever we look at because like yes we do but there we do it out of another reason because there we do it out of the reason of the wavelength and how we measure and so on. So I'm just not seeing that like both of them are true but I'm not seeing that the quantum physics kind of is a support for that it's useful for the box expansion or for the thought of serving these ones. So that's the only thing where I'm like 
but maybe if someone else has like a link for this, I would be grateful to hear something. Great. We will not go there now either. But I, I think it might be simpler than you think. But thank you for your consideration. Was... Thank you for listening. <laughs> Florian, you had your hand up for a second. You were going to say something. And... Just wanted to say I was happy to see more familiar faces than I expected here. <laughs> thank you. Janet, were I'd you... like to be witness. Yeah, I want to be witnessed with one thing. I did my first lab a couple weekends ago. Whoa. In Florida, where were you? Oh, in Seattle. Seattle. Okay, cool. And what I'd like to be witnessed in is that um, I'm dead. That was one of my discoveries. And I'm planning my funeral um, to be witnessed in, in that death. Can you just explain yourself a little bit? I got a better view of how I control my, I have, and it's been positive, right? I'm very smart. I, my mind is brilliant in a lot of ways, but it's also how I've managed to control everything in my mind. I don't control my life. It's, it's all here. And in one of the processes, the question was, well, what would happen if you let go of control? And because of our time over the last few months, I already had the answer to that, which was I would die. But actually, that's not true. And I sat with it, and, and the sadness came, and it was that I already was dead. Hmm. And that was big. Wow. And the group can't feel me. And it, I want to say that while I love Zoom and I've learned a lot here, the energetic possibilities in a group in real life is worth it, everything. The group were um, they gave me feedback that they couldn't feel me even though they could understand everything I was saying the feeling wasn't there and um, so I'm, I'll be doing some possibilities around the energetic body would you just say the last two sentences half speed the feedback that I received was that the group couldn't feel me And that while Zoom is great, and I've loved everything I've learned here, there's something really important about getting your butt in a seat with people. And they can give you feedback about all your bodies. Thank you. Thank you. You just made a perfect introduction to chapter five in the Radiant Joy Brilliant Love book, which has also been recently republished under a different title called Building Love That Lasts. The contents are the same pretty much, but I'm, I'm reading out of Radiant Joy Brilliant Love, chapter five, page 89, <clears throat> some amazing things about having a body. Some amazing things about having a body. And I, I will just say that since this book was written, we've discovered the fifth body, and it may or may not be relevant in, the, in what's being spoken about in this chapter. 
So if details are needed, I'll throw them in. Here we go. The person over there, the one you are interested in for relationship, has a body. So do you. When the other person no longer has a body, they are dead. Same with you. Sometimes beings without bodies arrange to communicate to us the beings with bodies. What the disembodied have to say can seem endlessly fascinating, but the relevancy of such information to our physical lives in the material world remains forever suspect. This is because no matter how well-meaning or all-knowing a disembodied being claims to be, it does not have a physical body, period. Having a physical body is a rare condition that provides the inhabitant with immediate feedback for evolutionary learning. Relationship is one of the most productive ways to make use of the learning opportunity of having a physical body. So this goes back to our very first time coming together when I was inviting each of us to grab somebody with whom to do these experiments and to just look around, bring somebody in as a colleague as a colleague in experimentation or a partner in experimentation just somebody to be doing experiments with because in a way if you avoid relationship if you avoid partnership if you're avoiding this ongoing negotiation in a way your box says one because it's so easy to protect itself or defend itself when it's not in close proximity with another box. So that's, the, that's one of the main values in terms of evolution of being in a partnership. So I'm, that invitation still exists for people it's to you know, grab somebody, commit to them, run with it, and do experiments until you crash and burn and then grab somebody else and keep going, something like that. Section 5A, it says four bodies. The first amazing thing about having a body is the observation that we do not have just one body. In medicine and healing, the human body is, to divi is divided up into various bodies for categorizing diagnosis and developing treatments. In the viewpoint of allopathic medicine, for example, we have a cardiovascular body, an endocrine body, a nervous system body, a skeletal muscular body, and so on. From the viewpoint of various other healing forms, we have an energetic body, an auric body, an etheric body, a soul body, a karmic body, a chakra body, a body of meridians, and others. Many systems for working with the multidimensionality of the human mind-body-heart-soul complex have been developed over the centuries. The approach of each system largely depends on the purpose for which it is to be used. 
various healing systems or psychological typing systems distinguish three bodies, four bodies, seven bodies, nine bodies, 12 bodies, 18 bodies, 144 bodies can be distinguished. The theme in our consideration about having a body is relationship. For relationship, we need nothing esoteric or complicated. So we will use a thought map that distinguishes four bodies. And I would include the fifth body in relationship because negotiating and experiencing five body intimacies is one of the extraordinary benefits so that when you want more and you engage in five body intimacies, you get more. The map of four bodies, which is shown in the book below, provides us with useful details for delightfully exploring in the domains of extraordinary human relationship and archetypal relationship. So the main confusion I just want to add in, probably in this coming explanation, will be between the energetic body and the archetypal body. So when we get to that point, I will try to sort of separate them out because a lot of the things that I originally attribute, attributed to the energetic body actually applies to the archetypal body. Here we go. The four bodies are the physical body with tissues and organs that have sensations. So hearing, taste, sight, temperature, uh, humidity, vibration, all that kind of stuff. The second body is the intellectual body with a mind that has thoughts. So this is opinions, judgments, criticisms, stories, memories, old decisions, and attention. The third body is the emotional body that has a heart with feelings and emotions, which are very different one from the other. Anger, sadness, fear, and joy can be either a feeling or an emotion depending on how long it lasts in your body. If it lasts longer than three minutes, it's not a feeling, it's an emotion. And the emotional body can also experience and express mixed emotions. And we'll get into that. And the fourth body is the energetic body, which it's, um, I'm gonna change this from what it says right here. Um, because I, I used to be thinking of the energetic body as the being, and I don't think of it that, like that anymore. I think of it as the energetic body is a thin energetic layer of field around the physical body that allows us to sense uh, timing and appropriateness and spaces. A lot of things that have to do with spaces is this, um, is this my space or your space? Are our spaces intertwined with each other? Or is it, are we too far apart, too close together? And also timing, is that too fast, too slow, too loud, too soft? Is, what's my purpose? All of these things are energetic considerations. The being, so, and the fifth body only comes online after these four bodies are balanced out because I think it gets into it, but we're, we're, after we go to school, we have a huge distortion in our four bodies, an imbalance that's just completely out of proportion. We have so much intellectual body information that our head swells up 
and our whole experience of life is oftentimes absorbed uh, through into the intellect. And so the imbalance in terms of our emotional body and energetic body is causes horrible, actual horrible uh, side effects that uh, most people in modern culture are not aware of. But for example, the entire planet is suffering under the side effects of this imbalance in our, that was we received in the education in our four bodies. So not until the four bodies, until the energetic body and the emotional body come online, do you start to even notice much about the fifth body, which is the archetypal body. And so, and in terms of the being, it, it looks to us more now like the being wears all five bodies like a body glove. It's like you, you slide into each of the five bodies and the being is, is the thing that wears the bodies. So it doesn't just wear, you know, in modern culture, the whole, in the, even in the hippie days, in the 1960s of last century, this whole thing of, this, of the mind-body. I remember Marilyn Ferguson wrote a book called The Aquarian Conspiracy, which, which really blew my mind because it brought to the surface the abundance of, of what a, a human experience is that's beyond the mind. So she, she called it the mind-body system. But even that is so it really a crippled, handicapped, or limited view based on what, what we're experiencing these days, which is that the system is five bodies and the being wears all five bodies like, like a spacesuit. And it's a, uh, each one of the bodies has its own uh, inputs and outputs and ways to interact with other people. And all of them are useful for transformation and life, life at large. There's so much to explore. Okay, I keep reading. Without a map, we tend to regard all of our sensations, thoughts, feelings, and experiences as one big mishmash. In the map of four bodies, it gives us the clarity to distinguish among the four unique domains in our relationships. This opens up four times the number of opportunities for experimentation, exploration, collaboration, and play. So there you go, more. Each of the four bodies requires its own kind of food, has its own kind of pain, enjoys its own kind of ecstasy, and offers its own kind of intimacy. And same with the fifth body, so the archetypal body. In this chapter, we will unfold the foods, pains, and ecstasies of the four bodies. In a later chapter, we will investigate the four kinds of intimacy. So this, I'm just going to run through this. Physical food is vegetables, grains, proteins, water, air, sunlight, vitamins, minerals, or physical contact. This is physical food. Physical body pain is hitting your finger with a hammer, having a fever, being hungry. Physical ecstasy is sitting at a cozy cafe, sipping latte macchiato while gazing at golden leaves on a bright, crisp autumn morning. So I say that because, you know, most people go, well, uh, physical ecstasy is orgasm. Yeah, but if that's it, then you're really limiting yourself to the number of orgasms you can have in a week. 
because I mean, how many do you have in a week? You know, but if you, but if you're drinking orange juice, like there she goes, Nicole's having ecstasy drinking the water right now. And if she's aware, if you're aware of the ecstatic experience of, of a breath, then you get to basically be orgasmic in every breath, being alive in every breath. That's more. So, so there's a lot to discover in relating to your physical body as a multiple dimension orgasmic sensation environment. And then you can add in the intellectual body for the same way. So intellectual food is ideas, a great book, visiting an art expedition, entertainment, information, instructions, clear instructions or explanations, new distinctions. Intellectual pain is, for example, losing your car keys or house keys or confusion or doubt. This is intellectual pain. Intellectual ecstasy is finding your car keys or solving a problem, or gaining clarity, having inst inspiration. So, so when in the kinds of conversations that you have with other people, it's useful to notice how much of your day-to-day -day conversation is about logistics. Because if your day-to-day -day conversation is about logistics, that you're not going to probably have much ecstasy. It's so so because it's ordinary, because it's it's physical domain stuff. And however, it doesn't take so much to limit or kind of quarantine your logistics time to 10 minutes a day. And, and then what? Then, then you have all this other time for other kinds of interactions besides just logistics. So this is a, an interesting experiment to try, is to confine logistics to a limited amount of time and then uh, explore what else is possible. Emotional body food is communicating about feelings, appreciating and being appreciated, for example. So this is just very few examples of the kinds of, of the things, but it gets you thinking about it. Emotional pain is holding feelings in, holding them back, holding them down, numbing yourself out to them. This is emotional pain. People think, you know, in the old map of feelings, that feeling any feeling a feeling is painful so on the on the new map of feelings all four feelings anger sadness fear and joy are all painful i mean you have probably laughed so loud that your face hurts like uh, a friend of mine was telling me a story about the time when he was in hawaii and he he got to have a scuba tank on on a boat and he he went diving in the boat with uh, whales, humpback whales. And he, he, it was two, two moms and a baby. And he was, he was just so ecstatic. And at one point that both whales just came right at him like this. And they swam so slowly right on either side of him. So he, he was in the middle of these two giant whales that were playing with him, basically. And he, he said, he, his, he got out of the boat after his air ran out. He got out of the boat 
and he's on the boat and he, he, his face hurts so bad because he, he couldn't stop smiling. You know, he was in so much joy having this experience. So this is painful. And a lot of times we're not aware of how, how painful laughing can be or smiling or being happy. It's actually one of the four pains. So, um, so emotional pain is holding feelings in. It's like when you, when you're, or being rejected, like considering yourself rejected or mixing your emotions together, such as with depression or jealousy or these mixed emotions this is often really painful. This is emotional pain. Emotional ecstasy is being reasonless about your joy, about responsibly using the wisdom and power of your feelings to serve other people. This is a kind of where, this is where you're in this kind of flow where your feelings inform you, inspire you, move you. You just move from your sensation of um, both your energetic body, your feelings body, your archetypal body from your archetypal lineage, that kind of thing. This, this is where emotional ecstasy comes in. Energetic food, this is now we're talking about the energetic body, is certain, is certain books and teachings, like radiations from sacred objects. This is energetic food. Shrines or temples, being in the presence of saints, being in the presence or even tombs of saints being in the presence of transitions such as birth, death, or transformation, like in trainings, or, the, or healing, or the experience of being with, which does not involve doing anything in particular, but is rather an interaction previous to words in which the being of one person is in simple contact with the being of another person. This is what we mean by the term being with. This is energetic food. Energetic pain is, is things like <clears throat> existential angst. It's, the, it's like not connecting to your own destiny or being, um, being subsumed in this illusion of separation, like feeling separate or disconnected or out of, out of the flow. Energetic ecstasy is accepting what is as it is, for example or having insights, or it's sort of energetic ecstasy is being in the river of the Earth Coincidence Control Office and letting yourself go downstream rather than fighting you know, with your mind, you know, with reasons and arguments and must be rational and trying to understand and swimming upstream, you know, having your ego try to hold on to a particular uh, concept or model and trying to fulfill a social pressure or something. This is painful. But when you go and you turn around and let the earth coincidence control office move you uh, and you're in alignment with the, this flow, this is um, a kind of energetic ecstasy or joy, uh, joy in groundlessness, for example. So a lot of times we will have the rug pulled out from underneath us during our, our, our daily experience. We discover something, we had an assumption, for example, or an expectation, and, and either the assumption is false or the expectation is not fulfilled <clears throat> and the ground is gone. So all of a sudden we're floating. And, and so 
the, the floating sensation is horrible for our box. It's horrible for our, our, um, our worldview, our, our, our comfort zone. It's horrible for that because, because we don't have anything to control. We have nothing to grab onto to control with. There's no, nothing solid, nothing, um, nothing predictable about being in the groundless condition. However, if you adjust your definition of what's ecstatic energetically, well, being groundless is pretty ecstatic in energetically. And so, mm, you know, I think we have some, I'm changing the subject a little bit. I think, I think there's this, there's so much wounding from school where we're expected to have answers, we're expected to have reasons, we're expected to know and understand, and we carry this pressure. We've had it for so many of our formative years that we carry this pressure into our daily life, into very subtle dimensions of our world that we're supposed to have answers and know and be able to explain and justify what's going on with ourselves. But you know, if you have a joy in a groundlessness where you're just falling in a, in a bottomless pit of, of the void and you're fine and somebody says, well, okay, what's the answer? Well, the answer is yes. Or the answer is come along. Or the answer is yippee. Or, you know, this, these are not rational answers. And yet life is so rich with these opportunities that uh, that we miss them when we cling to the objectives or goals or the game of playing the game of school, for example. So joy and groundlessness, selfless service, these are ecstatic, energetic body experiences. So, and just to go one little step further, the archetypal food has to do with noticing details of your own, for example, archetypal lineage. So what is it, what are you here for? Who, what is it, uh, what's, your, what's your job in the village? What's your calling? What, is, what are you actually, what knacks and skills are you bringing into this life from other lives or from previous training? What is it that you have this resonance with? To, just to notice that. This is energetic food, or being able to provide other people with clarity about that is food for them. So when you provide food for others, you get food for yourself. And I just want to add in here that for a number of you right now, you're in this transition period between uh, where you used to think that you have to go to certain people or authorities or spaces to get food for yourself. But in fact, your further learnings will take place mostly through providing for other people. By serving other people, you, you will get your further lessons, your further skill building, your further teachings like that. So you're, I think we're, some of you are, have already been through that and some of you are in that transition point where you have the orientation towards trying to get something from someone else and it's just not enough. Do you know what I mean? It's just not, it's like nobody can answer your question. Nobody can surprise you. Nobody can pull the rug out from under you. So and where, where you really get that is in delivering trainings and transformational possibilities and healing spaces for other people. So that shift is a big shift. And I just 
I, I like to say it in a space so that you can reflect on that for yourself to see if that might be true for you. So, and if it is, that doesn't mean you shouldn't come to spaces like this where there might be some food for you or com community or connection with other edge workers and things. But it does mean that you don't get to be so much of a consumer in terms of, uh, your, of fulfilling your own necessity. You need to create spaces in which the, what's, what's required of you in the space brings that food for you. You need to create spaces where you're challenged adequately, where you have enough pushback on what you want to offer that you go through these processes of evolution. And that's, that's going to be like that for the rest of your life. So you don't get to go around looking for a guru anymore because there aren't any. <laughs> you know, it's, it's up to you to invent spaces of your own. Uh, transformation. So, you know, that, that's a pisser because, you know, I, I want, it's, it seems easier to have other people do that stuff for us. But sorry, guys, um, you guys are the catalytic elements. So throw yourself into those spaces and go through the washing machine and you'll come out cleaner and better and more afterwards. I like this word more. Okay. Um, so the, that's fifth body. So fifth body, archetypal body pain is, for example, uh, looking at a culture and noticing that the culture itself forbids archetypal body knowledge or that archetypal lineage is forbidden or ignored in a culture, for example. There's pain about that. And there's pain about having uh, archetypal gifts to offer and failing to create spaces where you can do your cool stuff for people, where you can really provide your services for people. Failing to do that is, is, is sort of like being a battery on a shelf, not being used for anything, like a rechargeable battery sitting on the shelf, never being used for anything. So you don't get to go through this, depletion exhaustion total full-on and then getting refilled again and then going you know going through this cycle you don't get to have that and that's so that's painful to just sit there and not contribute to not contribute to not create is painful archetypally and uh like i said uh archetypal ecstasy has a lot to do with the archetypal nature of the universe that we're able to participate in to a much higher degree than almost anybody in modern culture realizes. I mean, the whole model, like I said, I went to, I went to Greece one time, no, excuse me, Rome one time, and they had this set of ruins. It was it's part of the old downtown Rome, and you could see either side of the road was populated by the ruins of temples. You have temples here, temples there, temples here. And so you have, you have these intermediaries. It's almost like the church where the priest or the, is the, the priest is the intermediary between you and the archetypal world. Well, this is, this is a kind of insanity because 
we're designed to interact directly with the archetypal world and the archetypal world is right here. It isn't somewhere else. It's not out there. It isn't waiting. It is present and here and now all the time and you can interact with it. We're designed to interact with it. So to force yourself to go through an intermediary is painful. If you want to talk to Zeus, talk to Zeus. You know, if you want to, if you want to, Talk to the angels, talk to the angels. You want to talk to the bright principles, talk to the bright principles. You can be the space through which your bright principles do their work in the world. Go ahead. And this is the archetypal capacities that we have. And so to do that is ecstatic. To block it because of some concept in your mind that you have to go through a priest or through some temple goddess or something like that, this is painful. This is archetypal pain in your archetypal body. So those are some examples. So the value of the map of four bodies or the map of five bodies is that by incorporating the map into the structure of your box, you gain the possibility of consciously distinguishing and experiencing five kinds of relationship with each other, physical, intellectual, emotional, energetic, and archetypal. You can distinguish those. If you don't have the map, it's all mushed together and you can't, you can't play it. You can't, it's like, it's like if you're going to make bread and you go to the store, you buy a bag that has all the ingredients already in the bag. All you just do is add water or something. So it doesn't give you this freedom of movement that you have when you have, when you, when you're in relationship with your own five bodies, then you can put, more of this, less of this, what's going on over here, you ask a question, you unfold it, you go deeper, you transform it, you push sideways, you have all these options for intimacy uh, and negotiation that you don't have if you don't distinguish the five bodies. So that's, that's why it's valuable to bring it into your world as a, as a map, as a thought map. So when you scan people, which I hope you're more and more consciously doing, you go to the shopping zone or you're at meeting somewhere, or even, even in movies and things, you scan people and you detect what's going on in each of their five bodies separately. And so here's what's, and you can test. I've, I think we talked about this, where you can sit at a cafe and scan somebody and then you, then you go check, you walk over to them and say, excuse me, I was, I was I'm, I'm in a class and we're practicing scanning and I just scanned you from over there. I got all this stuff, here's, I made notes but can I check it with you to see how accurate it is? And you'd be surprised how often the people go, well, yes. And then you get to check your scanning with those people. They go, God, that's really amazing. You God, that's total bullshit. You blew that one. So you get feedback and coaching about your scanning and you can you really, you can just do it with almost anybody and people are happy to hear um, what you have to say most of the time. <laughs> just don't get punched out when you, <laughs> So you just have to frame up your invitation in a way and people will be totally open to it. So, so you got the five body map, then you can create experiments to enter further into intimacy in each of these five bodies. So we will go into more detail about intimacy experiments in chapter seven on the part called Edgework. The next section, I wanna just read through it and we'll talk for a bit. It's called pain. An amazing thing about having a physical body 
is that it delivers the experience of sensations. Sensations come in through a wide variety of sense organs and can range in intensity from undetectably low to overwhelmingly high or intense. Contrary to what we might expect, some of the most intense sensations are those that are the most subtle, as expressed in the phrase, the unbearable lightness of being. How many people have heard that phrase before, the unbearable lightness of being? Okay. It's a title of a, of a 1984 novel by Milan Kundera, and it's also a, a film made from the novel. I don't necessarily recommend the film, but the phrase really is, I use the phrase a lot. Yeah, so I encourage you to consider that there's this very intense, unbearable lightness of being, and that level of intensity has to do with something that's very subtle. I keep reading. Individually or mixed, sensations are usually classified, we usually classify sensations into pleasure or pain. The boundary where pleasure changes into pain is subjective. That is, the boundary changes from person to person, from circumstance to circumstance, or from moment to moment. Whether something is pleasurable or painful is a matter of personal taste. And as the old Romans knew, de gustibus non disputandum est, which means there is no arguing about taste. So there is no absolute answer to is this pleasurable or is this painful or is this enough or is this too much? Because it's all about taste. Where the consideration about pain gets interesting, and that's interesting in terms of being a possibility manager or in terms of negotiating intimacy, where it gets interesting, where pain gets interesting is in noticing that only human beings have the ability to transform pain into suffering. Only human beings have this ability to transform pain into suffering. Pain is not suffering until the pain has been given meaning. By giving a particular sensation meaning, we human beings create our own suffering. Pain is experience, experience is neutral. If pain were left completely neutral, we would not suffer. I mean, I don't know if you've heard these stories. I know people who have experimented with this and gone to the dentist to have a filling or you know, teeth work done with no uh, Novocaine, no painkiller. As, as their experiment of of, of having the experience as pain with no meaning. And then, and then, of course, they come out of the surgery, it's a surgery really, and they don't have to suffer the after effects of having the painkiller in their system because the pain comes, the pain goes, but they didn't make it into suffering. Whereas most of us have this, some tolerance level, we've decided this is, this 
this has become suffering. This pain now becomes suffering. You know, I had a pastry the other day from a Middle Eastern pastry shop, and it had uh, rose water in it. So it was a, you know, rose water is this extract of roses. So I go, wow, look at this beautiful sesame, little tasty little thing. And I put it in my mouth and go, Gah! and I, I immediately suffered because they destroyed the taste of the sesame with rose water, if you can imagine it. You know, and some people, if I didn't have the story that I don't like, that my box doesn't like rose water in pastries, because I love the smell of roses. You know, I love real roses when they smell them. But if you give me hand soap with this fake uh, um, artificial rose smell in the hand soap, I hate that. You know, my box freaks out. So my box freaks out with the fake smell of roses in hand soap and also rose water and pastries, but give me a fresh rose and I'm in ecstasy. And it's the same thing. You know, it's the same. So, so the pain is the same, but the meaning is different. And we're the ones who create meaning. We are meaning makers. Pain is experience. Experience is neutral. If pain were left completely neutral, we would not suffer. We would just feel the pain. But human beings do not leave things neutral. We are unceasingly creative. Our mind is a meaning-making machine. We create complex, sophisticated stories about various sensations. And in this way, we come to the category of sensations that we name feelings. So we're entering the category of feelings. Okay, anything from anybody about the five bodies right now. What you said about the energetical body and its uh, sensitivity to timing and um, distance and um, I've noticed in my encounters with people from different cultures, they have different physical distance to each other. So it's like very cultural um, set, this energetical body of like, what is too close, what is too far, what is okay, and what is not okay. It was like, for me, that, that part of the energetical body is very cultural learned, like very box dependent. Think about it in what we just said. So, for example, there's a sensation of how close a person is, for example. But then there's this meaning attached to it. And the, the meaning is cultural. The meaning comes from our box. So we've been trained. A baby born in Arabia where you have to be able to smell somebody's breath before they're close enough um, would, would go to somebody in America and everybody's so far away. But but the same baby born in America would grow up in, in that story world about the sensation of the distance. So it really, I think, is a lot of trained about the stories. But it's such a fascinating thing. Like, I mean, this is such a key for human interactions, I think, that, that so much of what we quote unquote like or dislike is only box. 
And if you, if you didn't know it was your box that has the likes and the dislikes, it, uh, it, would, be, it would be horrible to be around somebody from a different culture, for example. How many of you have been in relationships with people from a different culture than your birth culture? Anybody do that? Yeah. And I, I think I think it's such a it's such edge work. I think it's also healing, cultural healing work for two people from different birth cultures to create love happening in spaces, transcends or heals the war the conflicts, you know, the stories of hateful, spiteful, resentful, painful uh, interactions between the two cultures. Pontus, were you going to say something else about that? No. Yeah, but it's so fascinating for me how much of our, our much of what we, what blocks us, even unconsciously, is the story that we apply unconsciously or learned from our culture. Amba, turn your your voice on, your mic. Yeah, I'm I'm still a bit hooked with the archetypal pain. And I wanna I wanna ask you Amba, I can't. Amba, you're, the connection is bad. Amba, you say that. Amba, wait, the connection is bad. Could you turn your video off, keep your sound on, and say the same thing again? I think it's actually my voice, but <laughs> uh, about the archetypal pain, I understood that you said that the, you feel archetypal pain when the box doesn't allow the archetypal lineage to come through. Yeah. Did you say that? Yes. And archetypal ecstasy, on the other hand, is when the archetypal lineage is coming through. For example, when it's being well used. Yeah, okay. It's a good use. These are, these are two examples. There's many, many other examples, but those are two examples. Can you give, a, can you give one more example? Of the pain? or oh, the Well, pain? of both, actually. Well, I, one, one example I gave was to, to see, to be in a space or a cultural space, a context where the fifth body is not distinguished and where uh, it's not recognized the the possibility of human beings to deliver archetypal services in a space is not recognized. That would be painful. And to be together in a space where, where the, the valuable uh, services or distinctions or, or possibilities that the archetypal, various archetypal lineages from the different people can bring in and to have them called forth, you know, Please speak to me from your archetypal lineage. What does your archetypal lineage have to say about this? To be called upon and used and to collaborate with each other, that's total ecstasy in the fifth body. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, in the, like for example, in the recent training spaces, Amber was with us in, in training spaces in Portugal. 
we, for example, in the evolutionaries, we were doing that a lot, very different times. And even in the labs, we're doing, when we're doing these healing processes and, and initiatory processes, a lot of times it's a total collaboration with the archetypal bodies to make that stuff happen, to make it safe and make it possible. And that's, that's why I love the, that's, I'm ecstatic in those spaces, oftentimes. Yeah, thank you. Anything else about that right now? All right. Oh, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Michelle, you have to turn your mic on. Go ahead. Yes. Thank you. Everything you spoke about uh, really resonated with me. I, I was not contributing and I was not contributing the, the services that I could provide um, in my archetypal body for years. It was very, very painful, very, very painful. And and uh, Echo has been on an accelerated path with me and I am now providing many new services that I could not have even planned out or imagined or made up. And so I'm living in Puerto Morelos, Mexico, and there are ceremonies here left and right. Ayahuasca and mushrooms and peyote and everyone's wanting something and wanting to feel, really wanting to feel. And I some, somehow I said, oh, I can do integrative integration after you do the plant medicine how about that and i've met in the last 10 days with 10 people mm. um in groups of two so five groups of two for four and a half hours integrating their experience and they come open from the medicine because they hadn't slept and and it's just been so powerful and now i'm getting referrals and now anyway and and I'm just I'm I'm listening to you and I'm not listening to you with my mind or with I'm my I'm absorbing all of this and it's so big and you're right there are no gurus to show me and teach me and I'm taking a stand for that and I also need help and. Um, okay. People want to feel, and I'm providing that for them. And I'm so happy about that and joyful. And I am also one of my responsibilities. Thank you for the patience is so that people have create a responsibility around using sacred medicine. Because you know Clinton and many of these guys don't, but sacred medicine and ayahuasca is what saved my daughter's life years ago. Period. Dot. So I have a reverence to that ancient medicine and understand how it has to be utilized with utmost respect. And the wisdom that the plant has, we don't have. We're just children compared to that. 
And so there's a responsibility in that too. And I'm able to do that in a very loving way as well. I wanted to share that piece. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I mean, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I've said it before how all of this stuff in possibility management is copy left. And so the reason it's copy left is it's, it's thoughtware for next culture. And, and as the initiations or um, <clears throat> the initiations, the plant medicine, it serves usually as bridges, oftentimes as a bridge, but where does a bridge go is the question. So this is where the maps are necessary. This is where the clarity and distinctions and the experiential distinctions, not just conceptual distinctions, but five body experiential distinctions prove to be extremely useful and important is, is um, because going in a liquid state isn't gonna guarantee anything. What guarantees outcomes is the context, the morphogenetic field, what's the purpose? These are the kinds of things that have the bridge actually go somewhere useful. So the integration services that you're providing are doing exactly that. You're putting in the distinctions, you're uh, building the bridges, you're designing the field into which the, the uh, shift can happen, the outcome can happen. So that's so important. And their beings know that they need it. That's, mm -hmm. that's the magic around it too. Somehow they know they need it. Yeah. You know, sooner or later, I'm not just speaking to you, but all of us, you, it's important to bring in some kind of an apprentice circle around your work. I, th I think most of you get this already, but if you, if you get it yourself, if you figure it out yourself, you're just going to die. And that, that will be a fine time for you, but it won't be responsible in a certain way of passing it on, like passing on what you've learned. And so it's not easy. It's easier to just do stuff by yourself, I know. But it's, I think it's really important these days in particular to bring, uh, to create the possibility for some kind of a apprentice circle. People who you can share the kind of nuts and bolts of the magic that you're creating in the world. The, the tools, the skills, the experiences, the stories, just download this stuff to them. So, and, and also teach them how also to have a, an apprentice circle around them so, so that the tradition carries on. And so part of the field of replacing yourself is getting, is training up other people to, to take over the job that you have so that, so that, uh, that the, whatever, so that, the, so that there's more. <laughs> So, because uh, it more is needed right now. I mean, we're, we're so small and we're such an edge, edgy little group of people that there's really, there's really a huge amount of space open for, for and the necessity for the filling in the distinctions and the bridge, the bridge building that we're talking about. So try to, if you can try, imagine it, try, we have a thing in possibility management where we, uh, we're going to call it the janitor ring, you know, the housemeister, the people who 
pick, you know, clean the, the toilet cleaners. We were going to call ourselves the toilet cleaners. And then we decided to call ourselves the infinity ring. So there's this little circle. We have little circles of people who do the jobs behind the scenes to make stuff happen. And these are our apprentice circles. And it's just great. We have the most amazing conversations that we would never have, except we're in these spaces where it's like, okay, why didn't you do that just then? Or why did you do that just then? Or how, how did you cause that to happen just then? And because most of the time you do your magic and, and people just receive the benefits, but they don't learn how you do it. And you've learned the hard way how to do it. And so I think uh, by having apprentice circles around, I've learned so much more about what I do. Because if I was not forced to explain myself to other people, I wouldn't know how to explain it. I wouldn't be able to say what I do, how I do what I do. And so I, I think it's a, also a great learning for you to have to be, you know, to allow any question at any time for no reason to allow people to, to demand answers from you. And this, just your archetypal lineage, I mean mine anyway, just loves it. It's like because they fry Clinton circuits, you know, Clinton has this box and, and uh, somebody asks a question and the box would go, not now, not now, just leave me alone, you know, but the, I gave permission, any question, any time, no matter what. And so then, then the question goes through me to the archetypal lineage and the answer is <coughs> immediate. It's just like, it's like there's before the questions even finished, the answer's coming through and it's like, and I learn and I go, Oh really? That's what's happening. <laughs> so, Anyway, I encourage that, I encourage you guys to do that. So thank you, Michelle. I want to say, Janet, can you hear me? Hello, Janet Redmond from New Zealand. Are you, you keep going in and out. How, can you just talk to us for a minute from, from, from your, I can see you this time. Hello, where are you? What's, Hi. Talk to us for a minute. I'm going in and out because I'm caring for two children that I'm waking up to get ready for school. Oh, wow. So, greetings from New Zealand. Okay, how are you doing? What are you up to? What magic have you been doing the last few weeks? <laughs> we'll be doing even more magic this weekend, Julia and I. We have a training, two-day training. Cool. And last time was very transformative. Two sorceresses having lots of fun. What do you call yeah. it? Well, we, we don't have a name. Transformative spaces is what we called it last time. <laughs> and then anything goes. <laughs> yeah. when people pay for this imagine they absolutely do <laughs> out at shadow where you came that must so be this is the second one we've run at shadow retreat center where I you and marion and steph came that's a wonderful yeah. place so you must you must have some great legends going out that people hear and that they are coming in because of the legends Yes, indeed. Yeah. Can you tell? So they're coming back for a practice weekend from the three and a half days to plug back in. Can you tell us one way that you make legends that people can find you and find their way back in? How do you make legends like that? How do I make legends like that? By letting the space do the work. Then my archetypal lineage works through me. And now I get a free sweat even saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, one story. Tell us one story about when your archetypal lineage was doing the work. 
well, the, there's a lot of young people coming, and the four the four sisters that went through an enormous life event used to be called trauma life event, and the four of them coming together, talking about ten years of pain of a mother with a brain tumor. All four of those went out on fire, and now creating that in their own circles for their their peers. So there's one little snippet. <laughs> Thank you. All righty. I'll go and wake this other child up. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to take the opportunity because we saw you this time. You weren't in the dark, and I go, Janet's there. Talk to us. Okay. Yeah, we've Thank got you. daylight. How luxurious. Okay. <laughs> See you later, Clinton. Bye -bye. <laughs> okay, I'd like to read a little bit further, and we're hearing section 5B, which is. Uh, page 92 it's called feelings so you know people think possibility management is about feelings work but it is not it is just simply that possibility management is about creating managing transforming possibilities but that starts in the adult ego state in the present and if you inhabit your body in the present moment the first thing you'll start noticing is you have feelings and emotions, mostly emotions. And if you don't know how to manage the emotions, if it's not okay to have emotions, you will bounce right out of the adult ego state back into the child state, the parent state, the gremlin state. So you can't, we, can't, we couldn't even talk to people about possibility until they could be in the adult present in their body, by bodies, and then we could start to talk. So that's why feelings is at the beginning usually of most of the training work that we're doing, most of the initiations. So here we go. It is amazing that our culture would not provide us with an education about feelings. Human beings have bodies. The human body is one of the most complex and sensitive structures in the universe. Human bodies, are having feelings and emotions every moment about everything. This is no exaggeration. You are having feelings and emotions right now. It is bizarre that our culture, modern culture, which makes, which makes sure that we know how to do long division. When was the last time you did long division? Neither educates nor trains us about feelings and emotions when we have feelings and emotions every day. As we approach the territory of extraordinary human relationship and begin to observe in detail what is possible there, deep and long repressed feelings and emotions could well arise in you. This is normal. If emotional reactions come, try to simply feel your emotions and feelings and be clear about it. Let them be there. Give your feelings and emotions permission to go through you. So I'm talking about the shift from the old thought map of feelings to the new thought map of feelings. I think I was not so clear about it when I was writing the book, but in the expand the box training, it's very clear. Feelings hurt, quote unquote hurt, only if you hold the feelings in. When you have clarity about what you are feeling in any moment, then the feeling no longer hurts, it just feels. 
your feelings are rocket fuel for change and your emotions also. If you repress your feelings again about how you have been creating relationship in the past, you get this? If you repress your feelings again, how you've been having about the pain you have about creating relationships in the past, you will not have the clarity or fuel to break out of old tendencies and try new experiments. You'll just duplicate what you did before. It's almost like flying an airplane and having all your instruments turned off, your altimeter, you know, your, your compass, you have these all turned off if you, if you keep your feelings off. So that's, it's, you can't really fly very well that way. You'll keep crashing into the same mountains and you wonder why, who put the mountain there? Anyway, you can use the feelings and emotions as fuel and clarity and information for doing something completely different next time because it will be telling you. So, a map of four feelings. Valerie Lankford studied with Dr. Eric Byrne, the creator of transactional analysis. Valerie also went through an intense therapeutic process from 1971 to 1975 at the Cathexis Institute under the guidance of Jackie Schiff and others. I know these stories because I got to meet Valerie Lankford back in 2007 in a transactional analysis conference, international transactional analysis conference in San Francisco. I was there presenting uh, a little thing with Janet Redmond was there too. Um, I don't know if you can hear. <laughs> Janet, can you tell this story? Do you have time to tell this story? Yeah. This would be wonderful. Go ahead. So I too went to the San Francisco TA conference and a lot of the topics didn't interest me. And there was this guy Clinton and Marion and I went to this workshop. Clinton says to me, can you show me how far you can express your fear? So I thought, okay. So I lay on this mat, did a, what I thought was a little fear expression. I thought, oh, this is cool. Clinton says to me, will you do that again? I said, yeah, no problem. Lay down, let the fear come, express the fear. And I, I thought that really was fantastic. It was only years later, Clinton told me, he said, I stellated my fear 100% in that room and then the adage is that the guy who came to you after said i haven't heard feelings like that since eric byrne do you remember clinton yeah yeah so yeah that's the little snippet of that and yeah that's when i got to meet you and marion thank you that was it was amazing it was one of those echo things it was unbelievable because mm -hmm. they put our little yeah. Our little, we had probably 12 people in our, in our little room and they, they put it just, they divided the large room up with these temporary dividers. And so our room was in the side of the big room with probably 200 people all listening to some important transactional analysis, famous guy pontificating about something. And I was pissed off because we were in this room. And so when Janet stellated her fear right next to their big room, I said, Janet, could you do that again? <laughs> <laughs> no trouble. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was so beautiful that people had the experience that it's possible and simple in a safe place with clarity. 
for somebody to, we're designed to experience and express 100% maximum archetypal fear. And Janet was just, her tubes were cleaned out. She was able to do it the first time. So the, that was amazing. And then I it walked. It was literally the keynote address. <laughs> was it the keynote? So I walked outside after the on the break, and and the the guy who organized the whole conference comes up to me, and he goes, "Are you the people who are making noise in the next room?" You know, and I go, "Oh man, here it comes! All right, the hammer's going to hit." And then that's what he said. Is it really touched me? Because I have not heard feelings in transactional analysis since Eric Byrne died. And that means that Eric Byrne wanted the aliveness from the Valerie Langford maps of the four feelings to be included in transactional analysis, but the people didn't, couldn't hold it. The transactional people were really up in the head thinking about stuff and they couldn't hold it. So I, I felt it was feedback. It was really a compliment. I was so glad to be there. And so I'm so grateful to you, Janet, for having made that. And you, Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's very cool. I remember we had a few Japanese guys in there too, and I think they were quite astonished with what you could do. Oh. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so Valerie Langford, she was there at the conference, and I also got to go with Marion to a workshop from her, and I thought, gosh, this is going to be amazing, because here's the Ver Valerie Langford, the woman who was locked away in a nut house. And they told her, learn, Jackie Schiff told her, learn to think while feeling. Think while feeling. And that's when Valerie Lankford created this map, mad, sad, glad, and scared. There are four feelings. So I thought, oh man, we get to meet Valerie Lankford. And, and I thought it would be a packed room. And she was up in some little room. And there were four people who came to her workshop. Really, it was four of us, me, Marion, and two other people. And I'm looking at her going, Valerie Langford, what is this about? And she, she said the same thing. She said, it just has not made a breakthrough in the transactional analysis world. And I told her, I was so happy to tell her that we figured out this map of mixed feelings and mixed emotions and how we use it for stellating and how we use it for all this stuff. And she was completely fascinated by that. So yeah, it was, I'm so glad I got to meet some of these people. So this, um, she created this thinking while feeling resulted in creating a new thought map for feelings that is presented to you here in the book. The profound clarity of this little map has changed many people's lives, including mine. The map of four feelings proposes that all human feelings can be divided into four categories, anger, sadness, joy, and fear. Using this map, we suddenly have intellectual clarity about feelings. The map says there are four feelings. The idea that there are four core feelings or elemental feelings provides tremendous clarity in the area of feelings, especially for men. Only four feelings, guys, we can handle this. Our culture teaches us, modern culture teaches, the old thought where of feelings teaches that there are three, uh, three of the four feelings, namely anger, sadness, and fear, are negative or dangerous or bad feelings. So when we feel any of these three bad feelings, we conclude that something is wrong with us because we all know that Indians feel no pain. 
not only are we taught that three of our feelings are bad, we are also taught that the one positive or good feeling, happiness, is actually also dangerous. For instance, in Germany, they say, there's an old saying that if a bird sings happily in the morning, a cat eats it in the evening. So, or, yeah. Overall, our modern culture teaches that it is not okay to feel. Our role models have shown us nothing different from that. If feelings are not okay and we experience feelings, then it is a short and often unnoticed leap to conclude that we ourselves are not okay, that there's something wrong with us. Perhaps many cases of crippling self-criticism or self-doubt actually come from our modern cultural confusion and misunderstanding about the okayness of feelings. We could make a new decision, you're invited to make a new decision about the okayness of yourselves. If you made a new decision about the okayness of, of feeling, if you could do that. So it's a huge, I don't know, I think everybody here has already made that decision. I think you've all been through that process. Does it, and I'm, I'm, it's, it's 6.30 right now, and I would stop here in terms of reading the book, but I'd like to keep talking for a while. We made it to page 93. Uh, we're not, we have not entered the new map for the same tori, territory. But could any of you tell a story? So anybody who has to go, thanks for being here. Florian, you said you might have to go. Anybody who needs to go, thanks for coming. And anybody who's sticking around and could tell a story about the shift from having thinking of anger and sadness and fear as being a, a problematical or negative or some kind of uh, bad or evil thing. If you could, if you could tell a story about that, what it was like to shift out of that, to shift. Nicole, it'd be great to hear from you. I have a story. It happened when my elder son was about four years old, and I was having so much trouble with him because. I just thought that him having feelings was a problem and that meant that I had to do something to fix the problem. And I read a book by Aletha Salter called The Aware Baby. And she put it like this. She said like, what if, what if letting your, your sounds and your tears and your anger like all be expressed is as important as letting your poo and pee come out? And if you, we know that if you don't do that, you're in big trouble. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, this just landed as true for me. And so that, that night, I, I told my little four-year-old son, I'm going to read you three stories where you're going to brush your teeth. We're going to, you're going to brush your teeth. We're going to read you three stories. And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to go sit in the living room and have tea. And I'm not going to lie with you. And, and keep nursing you and keep reading you stories until you're so exhausted you fall asleep. It was, that's what I was actually doing. Because I was swinging so far away from the, like, leave the child in their room to cry it out and, you know, give up on humanity. I don't know. Anyway, so he just started crying because I was going to leave. And I just, I, I actually stayed with him while he cried and just said, it hurts coming out, doesn't it? it hurts coming out. And he was like, yeah. And eventually he cried so much instead of being read to and nursed and like, he just cried with me there. He wasn't a, 
like I didn't abandon him. He got so tired and he just, he would lay down. And I said, I'll be in the kitchen drinking my tea. And he's like, okay. And then he slept the night for the first time ever, four years old. And he, he slept on and on. I woke up in the morning. I'm like, is my kid dead? Like he wasn't. So I got up and I made myself another cup of tea and I sat back down and it, it took about half an hour before like he sat up in bed. He didn't cry to see me not there. He looked around. He, I think he remembered. He looked out to the kitchen or to the living room where I was and um, saw me and lit up and came running through and gave me a hug. And he said, I love you, mommy. And that was the first time he'd ever told me he loved me without me prompting him or without someone prompting him or without it being like he knew he had to say it. That's my story. Wow. Wow. I mean, this, this is why I wrote this, the book, the Goodnight Feelings book, is because through the story of the book, the parent and the child get to go through their day. What were you angry about? What were you sad about? What were you glad about? What were you scared about? What did you do with it? You know, what, would, what did you use it for as giving the, you, that you can actually use it for something? And by the end of the story, the, the, um, the chamber, whatever, the, the organ of the heart, whatever, the thing that has not been communicating gets to say everything, gets to, to share it all out. And the sadness, anger, fear, and joy is shared. And then, you know, good night. Then the good night thing happens. Yeah, that's such a great story. Thank you. I, um, I shared that book with two parents with young children, and both parents made that a, da a, a daily practice with their young children, and one of them was a boy. And, um, and it's, it's just transforming, transformative to see these kids you be able to express their feelings at such an, a young age. And I taught, I actually needed to learn about expressing my own feelings or making it okay. And I was given an opportunity to teach feelings work to teenagers at a high school. And, um, and I had kids, extremely angry kids that were placed there, they didn't wanna be there. And they would start out the class like this and not speak, you know, especially the angriest kids. And I don't want to be here. I'm not saying, you know, fuck you. I'm not saying anything. And any, you know, so that language was okay there. We just worked with it. And, um, and by about week three, they would unfurl their arms and start paying attention. And by, about, by week six, they were transformed. It was, it was absolutely incredible. It was their favorite class. It was a place where they could express feelings because they all were frustrated. They were teenagers and they lived with parents who were um, crazier than they were and angrier, or I should say angrier than they were and, or depressed. And so uh, to be able to unravel those feelings and express them in a way that, um, was was helpful was was you know in a way that wasn't fighting in a way that was helpful to them 
that they could go home and actually express them in a way where they weren't going to get grounded um, was just transformational. It was just, it was unbelievable. Yeah, an unbelievable feeling. Yeah. How often did you get to do that class, Phyllis? Or how many? 15, 15 years. Wow. Every semester, um, it was offered to anyone in the school. And a lot of kids were placed there either by their parents or the principal. And certainly not all kids bought into it, but probably 75% of them did and made huge transformations. Um, you know, yeah, huge kids that were completely unaccepted, you know, wearing trench coats and people were scared to death of them. And, um, and they had no idea the messages that they were giving out. And they had incredible feelings, even though people were scared to death of them, including teachers, they had incredible feelings around being left out and um, unaccepted by other kids. And yet that's the message the, that they were giving out. Yeah, so. Yeah, I, thank you. Thank you it, and I just want to say it transformed me too because I really had no clue what I was feeling half the time. So in teaching this, I also had to speak about my own experiences. We all went around the room in the beginning and talked about um, feelings that we had because it was every other day that it was taught. And um, so I had, to, I had to model it. And so it was transformational for me too because I had to figure out what I was feeling and how I handled it. <laughs> and I didn't always handle it very well. So um, yeah, so it was, it was good for me to own that too. And, and then to come back and have maybe have done a do-over so I could also model that for the kids because, um, yeah, so it was pretty cool. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. I just wrote in the chat, <clears throat> there's this film called Freedom Writers, which is just another story about a teacher who takes a risk like that and uses writing for the expression. It's just so wonderful. But Phyllis, thank you for being such a role model. I hope some of those students became teachers who, who copied you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Somebody else, something, uh, Doris, and then Mia. Yes, I, I will see how long I can be in there because my internet was not, I was not able to come in today really. And it was an interesting morning because I felt I want to go in because I was in every, every Monday since April. And there was a seminar next, next week, last week, and I'm scared about sharing that. Yeah, I know. I'm scared. Yeah. Cut to the thing, okay? We don't need to know about brushing your teeth and all that stuff, okay? What's the yeah. thing? The thing is that I was, I was feeling into if I really, if it's really the time to go in because I wanted to write and everything. And 
there were coming up a lot of feeling how I feel in the call most of the time that I feel not important, not seen, not... I had my breakfast there and I thought, oh, I have to take the camera out to have my breakfast. There was a lot of stuff coming up, what I felt, what I was not aware, which I had all the, no, not all the time, but several times. And I just wanted to share that, that sometimes um, my English is not good enough. Um, there are other people better than me. So it was like, be connected with that, what is now, and just you have enough input and just be with that. And so I was not able to come in. And I was this morning just feeling what I'm suppressing normally while I'm pressing myself to see how much, how strong my will is and how I'm overgoing all the rest of this stuff, uh, what is there. And yeah, just to share that. And I'm scared about sharing that, Clinton. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Hmm, Mia. Thanks, Doris. And I feel glad that you're here. Thank you. I just wanted to say that. I have, um, I've been, I have two questions. Curiosity, can you talk about curiosity and why it's a, is it a mixed feeling? Or, yeah. First, curiosity, if you do the experiment, you know, we, we actually, we ask people to do this as an experiment. What is curiosity? Because we feel it, you know, you can feel this experience called curiosity. And it has this mental quality to it, but it has this energetic quality to it. Because if you don't, for example, get your curiosity satisfied, there's something missing. It's an empty thing. And so our experience, Many people share that when they look into what curiosity is, is this mixed emotion. It's an experience of a mixed emotion of joy, you know, interest, this joy mixed with fear. It's a joy and fear mixed together because it's the fear of not getting your question answered or that maybe the answer will hurt you or change you or something. So it's a dangerous place to be curious and want to ask the question and, and the, the actual fear of what if you get an answer, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's very an iffy. It's a, it's a scary thing. It's an experiment. So that's, but do the experiment yourself, you know, keep experimenting. It's, we're not playing the game that we have right answers. We're playing the game of let's experiment together and keep discovering. And so, Mm, yeah, so there's, there's, I don't know, you know, there's a journey we can go on in this path, and it is not the journey of, we can't do it alone, for one thing, we cannot do this alone, we really need each other to do this, and so 
I mean, I think Doris is saying that. I, I, I might be not understanding, but I think Doris, maybe you were saying that I, I want to tell you, I want to share what's going on for me just so I'm, so that you guys know what's going on for me like that, because we cannot do that alone. And so on the one hand, on the one hand where this is an explorative journey together and there, there isn't a right way and there's not right answers. There's no method. What there are, are, are distinctions. There's maps, there's clarity, there's invitations to new possibilities and to enter new spaces together to explore using all this clarity and stuff together to use it. And so the thing is, if you do not do the experiment, you won't get the results. And, and so that's what practice is. Practice is about doing the experiments. So like, for example, Mia, you asked this question about curiosity. Well, you, you, now you have an answer, but it's not going to help you much because the answer goes in your mind. And the mind can be changed in three seconds as soon as you shift from one identity to another. You know, if I, if I wanted to right now, I could talk to Doris and I could dial up a different Doris. I could push, I could say a few things and a different Doris would show up on the screen. She'd be laughing in three seconds if I wanted to do that because I know there are a bunch of different Dorises over there. So Doris for herself has dialed up the Doris who feels alone or confused or overwhelmed or left out or not good enough. Other people don't speak, you know, she she's doesn't speak English as well as other people. Other people are better. So she has dialed up the experience of Doris of, that she just shared with us. So it's not good, it's not bad, but it's, it's, what, it's the Doris that she wanted to share with us. So each of us can do this with ourselves. I can do it. I could dial up some confused, depressed, I don't know, uh, didn't accomplish enough today guy. You know, I, I, could, I could dial up that guy and offer that to you in this space. But it's just, so we have a choice about that. Each of us has a choice about it. And until you get the inner map, until you get the distinctions that, that um, allow you to dial up which, which of your parts of your box you want to use right now, what's your experience you want to have right now, until you do that on, and can do it consciously, then you do it unconsciously. And the unconscious you that you dial up gets saturated with emotions that, in, that I think actually feed kind of little energetic vampire entities that love that dark uh, doubt, doubt, full of doubts, full of lack of confidence, full of subtle childhood fear, kind of disempowerment things. And these little vampire entities just love to eat that stuff from us because we're relatively evolved conscious beings. So we're, we're more tasty morsels than the zombies who are at McDonald's right now. Okay, they're just not so interesting, full of tobacco and alcohol and, and television series of people murdering each other and like that. So we're just tastier things for them. So if you're gonna open the door and let this little vampire come in and suck out your energy, it's gonna go whoopee, party time. Uh, you know, the buffet's open, guys, come on. So 
<clears throat> we can we can do that. So, but the thing is, can it's about it's about practice. It's about using the distinctions as weapons, as tools, as navigation aids, as a, as an internal compass, as a as a deciding what are you going to create now? What are you going to create? And this the in terms of deciding what you're going to create, it isn't about control. It isn't about suppressing your aliveness to 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 be the American success story. You know the the God, what's his name the you know the positive thinking heroes of the world and i'm so happy and everything's so successful and everything's so wonderful that's not what this is about this is about navigating space upper middle and underworld with clarity and power as a practice and so and and so mia that's what i'm saying is okay good now do the experiment it's about us we're a bunch of experimenters. We get to do the experiments together. What experiments have you been doing? What practices are you doing? What tools are you using? Who's your partner for doing experiments with? Do you have a team like, like Florian there? He's got a whole village around him and two or three houses full of people doing experiments three or four times a week. I don't know how, how often they meet, but it's often. And so each of us has a chance to do it, to practice and and we practice at however we want. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a term. It's like, it's not dangerous practice. It's kind of like challenging. It's like um, practicing fiercely. It's kind of a fierce practice. So, you know, we're trained in uh, our physical bodies to do a fierce practice and you end up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger or some of these people and you build up all these muscles and you can run 10 kilometers and you can do 100 push-ups and you can do backflips or you can you know you have these these muscles that ripple down your belly you know whatever so this is a certain kind of practice that we're shown there's so many when you have five bodies there are practices in the five bodies that you can do with your attention for example your attention your intention your purpose your, your relationship to other people's five bodies, to what's possible in a space, to what's not possible in a space that you hold because you're holding it so it's not possible. Like, like there's so many uh, additional distinctions and clarifications for your practice that opens up once you can consciously feel, for example, once you can center in adulthood, for example, once you have your center grounding cord and bubble and a small now in the present, this whole universe of ways opens up to practice. And this is what's possible for our, um, every human being. If so, so that's the invitation here in, in this particular study group is to use the distinctions and maps and thought work upgrades as invitations to between times to also practice and to apply it in your daily life and, and, to write articles about it, to share it with other people, to hold a space yourself, to hold spaces where you are offering your, uh, your gifts, your knacks, your archetypal lineage to the people around you, online and offline, so that you keep developing muscles for being the space through which your bright principles and archetypal lineage can do their work in the world. And nobody can do that for us, nobody. 
and so Leslie, for example, Leslie, you were talking about how you recognize there's this confusion box and you, you started today kind of playing with it in front of us and you were being okay with it. It was fantastic to see you encountering the confusion box and this little struggle going on between you would have this moment of brilliant clarity and then this moment of absolute confusion and then this in-between place and it's clearly you're practicing with this. And so I think that's what inspired me about your sharing was that you're, you're one of us, you're practicing, you're at the edge, you're, you're trying something new and you're, you're refusing to simply be a victim of the ordinary circumstances that you are practicing. And that's, to me, this is, we call it a study group, but it's really a, a practical practice group. And so that's why I, I like to hear from people when we first open up the space, what are you practicing? What have you discovered? What's unfolding for you? What, what new things are you trying? Like that kind of thing. I'm checking the time. We have about five minutes if we keep going. Would somebody else have something they'd like to throw out here? Clinton, can I ask you um, about a map that's in your that's in directing? What have you done to that book? Oh, my dog! My dog! Yeah, really likes to eat it for food. <laughs> so, plus I use it a lot. It's my Friday study group team. We we're we're studying this together, reading it, um, and we're 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 on page two two twenty six, and the map is four map of four kinds of messages yeah the urge to communicate comes from an excess or a lack and i've never seen this before in the five. Yeah. this also it's five now right because you're talking about the four kinds of messages each from the four bodies right yes okay now there's feeling. yeah what is the question about well i just found it interesting because to see to see that each body has the urge to communicate from an excess or a lack and i i was wondering if you could just i don't know say more about it or yeah i mean I, again i invite you to do the experience of you know what does that mean so notice the next like for just now you said clinton i want to ask the second question about this map okay so that was a need it was a, a lack in one of your bodies, which body was it? Okay, perhaps. But what I'm saying is it, that will be more useful for you if you could ask your question from all five of your bodies. Because actually this is a five body map. It only shows four of the bodies, but the information can be used in all five bodies when you add the archetypal body into there. And then, so instead of simply limiting your question to being an intellectual body question, um, expand it to a hunger, a lack in all five bodies at the same time. So your emotional body has this fear, I need this, I want this, I'm angry, I don't have this, I'm sad at the time goes by, I'm glad because I might get this cool domain in which I can experiment more. So it's not just your intellect, you know, it's not just your mind you get a, a, an emotional body answer. Your energetic body needs it because, because there's this sensation, for example, in your energetic body of, of this lack. 
I'm, it's a space, it's an emptiness, it's not filled, I need something, I want something. So you can start noticing this in all five bodies that your communications come from an excess of something or a lack of something. Because if you're completely neutral, if you're just totally, everything's just perfectly neutral, there's no need to communicate. You don't need to ask for anything or say anything. You know, even there's nothing hardly to share. You're just like, everything's, everything's neutral. So the communication comes from these imbalances. And if you know that about somebody, and somebody says something like, pass the salt, or they could say, I'm tired, you know, they're saying it for, uh, because they have a lack or, or an excess. And so if you listen for the lack or the excess, you're not just listening for the intellectual content of their communication, but you get there's a five-body being across from you who, who has a lack or an excess. It's a completely different way of relating with them. So you, it's, a, it's an entirely different form of communication. So you welcome, good, what, what's excess for you? What's lack for you? Which body's talking to me? What can I do for you? How, how can we play together in this? How can we explore further into the next level down or next level up or sideways in whatever their lack is or their excess is? There's all these dimensions you can add on. So, but if you don't, if you don't think about it, if you just think that somebody says, I'm tired, you go, God, they're tired. Oh man, that means they won't sweep the floor today. Or, you know, they're gonna, they won't have sex with me today, or they not gonna entertain me or whatever whatever the thing is you know but you can open up these five dimensions and five bodies and and and, and have more play space more see more play space more 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 so so give examples of excess again please yeah so I'm tired is, uh, an, uh, was that an excess or a lack? You think it is a lack, but it could be uh, a lot of times people have uh, the tiredness when they have too much energy to manage, you know, like too much, too much, um, too much so they collapse themselves into tiredness. So too much is, I've got too much inspiration, there's nobody to listen to me. I've got too much anger because, and so I need to, I need to do something with it. I've got too much fear and I don't know how to handle it. I mean, it comes out. So it comes out. So do you, you were asking about too much, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yes. yeah. So if you, if you're, there's this neutral state, the state of the zombie states, like you don't notice anything. Everything is just fine. And, and so, but when you have too much fear, then you're inspired to say something or ask for something or question something or like that, or if there's too much sadness or there's too much uh, inspiration, for example. Like, um, I think you guys, I think us, I think we're a lot more inspired than we admit. I think you are more inspired than you admit. And so if you're in your environment and people around you are just kind of doing blah, blah, and you're going, the world is coming to an end. There's so much possibility. This whole bullshit level of social whatever isn't real. And I, I want to ask, I want to go this and try that. And 
Like you have so much inspiration. And so that should allow, you know, that should inspire you to communicate all this, the too much, the too much level. So this is what the invitation is, is let yourself be as inspired as you are and let the too much inspiration come out rather than suppressing it. Or the lack also. I'm not, you're, what you're talking about right now is not inspiring enough. I need to change the context of this conversation and make it into extraordinary because it's not inspiring enough. So that's a not enough inspiration to move. So yeah, so these kinds of experiments. Yay. Yeah, thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is about seven o'clock my time here in Tenerife, sailing down the coast of Africa. It'd be a fine day, and I look it up at the set of me sails, and a large pelican flies over, and he takes a shit right in me eye. And it was the first day that I had me hook. It's a, it's a pirate joke. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. Have a great week. See you next time. Thanks a lot, you guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.